Would you uh, turn with me to Romans chapter 11? Now, I think we've been in Romans 35 years so far. It's taken a long time to go through it, but it's one of those books that is really the Magna Carta of Christianity. It, it's the Declaration of Independence, and it spells out all that God has done for us in such detail that it really bears a thorough study so that we can have a thorough understanding. Well, we've made, we've made it through ten chapters by God's miraculous providence, and now we're in Romans chapter 11 tonight. Now, of course, we're not going to finish this chapter, but um, tonight. And if the Lord comes back between now and next week, we probably never finish it. But um, we'll start it nonetheless. Well, the last week and a half, I've been suffering for the Lord in Hawaii. You know, it's a tough job, but somebody's got to do it. We had a conference over there, a pastor's conference for um, local pastors in the Hawaii on all the islands, as well as some from Japan that came. And uh, we had an outreach called How to Walk, and we had an evangelistic outreach. Several things were going on. And I took off, we took off last night from Honolulu about 9 o'clock, scheduled to arrive in Los Angeles at 5.30 the next morning. Uh, got in Los Angeles, scheduled to leave again at 6.30. And so we took off on that second flight toward Salt Lake City. And as we're climbing through the clouds overlooking beautiful, smoggy Los Angeles, I noticed that the plane starts turning a little bit and not gaining as much altitude as, as normal. And since we fly a lot, you just sort of pick up that something isn't quite right. And uh, then the ca captain uh, gets on um, the intercom and he says, ladies and gentlemen, um, uh, he says it very calmly, uh, we just lost engine number one. And so uh, we're turning back to land at Los Angeles airport. And then he goes, now this is, this is pretty routine. I'm thinking, yeah, right, routine. He says, this, this isn't all that uncommon. I've had this happen to me, oh, once a year in a simulator. I'm thinking, well, that, that doesn't help me much. It's not all that comforting. So he starts bringing it in, and then he goes, and would you please uh, remain calm and give a good snug tug on your seatbelt, make sure it's a little extra snug, and uh, by the way, you're going to notice some um, uh, emergency equipment on the airport, the fire engines and police, ambulances are going to be there. It's just a precaution. And of course, as we land, we see the lights going on like this, and, and, and all sorts of interesting thoughts quickly tumble through your mind, of course, at a time like that. Uh, the first being, will I die? Is this it? Is this curtains? Then, of course, as a Christian, all of the truths that you've learned kick in as well. And the answer to that, will I survive, is if God wants me to. Of course, you don't know that in advance. That's sort of the catch. But we're rest assured that nothing can happen to us until God's done with us. And when God's done with us, who wants to hang around anyway? I mean, if it's graduation time and you can go to heaven, it's not, oh, Lord, please, just one more day. It's like the two witnesses in the book of Revelation. It says, when they finished their testimony, then the beast was given the power to kill them. And so you, you wonder, well, maybe this is it. Maybe this is the time. Maybe God's finished with my testimony. All of that said as a backdrop to our study tonight the survival of the nation of Israel. They have survived throughout history through the most incredible odds they have been preserved by God. 
There's a story that I heard once about Queen Victoria who spoke to her prime minister about the Bible. And she said, um, show me one thing that proves the Bible is absolutely true. His response was interesting. He said, the Jew, madam, the Jew. Why the Jew? Why has the Jewish nation survived as it has against all odds? And, and why did God select the Jewish nation? Why are they the chosen people, as they're often called? In Deuteronomy chapter 7, let me read this verse to you. The Lord did not set his love upon you, God says to the nation, because you were more in number than any people. For you were the fewest, but because the Lord loved you. Why did I pick you? Not because you're great, not because you're more numerous, just because I want to. I love you. His sovereign choice to so love a group of people that he would historically work through them to bring all that he has is absolutely astonishing. No group, no group has been so blessed nationally has been so blinded spiritually and has been so persecuted intensely as the Jews. If you study the history of Israel objectively and you walk away from a study of the Jewish history objectively and you still don't believe in miracles, you're not a realist. Even the most astute agnostic Jew will admit, listen, there's times in our history that are just inexplicable. It would be as if God has protected us. Not that I believe in God, but it's so overwhelming. What other nation has survived as a distinct race after hundreds of years of slavery, after two total destructions and two dispersions, after six million members of their race went through a holocaust? And yet to this day they survived and have been regathered in the nation, the land of Israel, since May 14, 1948. Jerusalem has survived, Jerusalem itself, 36 wars, 36 destructions. It's been reduced to ashes 17 times, but has been rebuilt 18, and it stands today. The nation has about 5 million people in it. It's grown rapidly the past few years. But here's the catch. This 5 million member nation is surrounded by over 100 million people who would love to see them wiped out. Not all of them, but many of them would like to see them annihilated. Let me give you a brief cameo capsule. There's more to be said, but just a few little things from their history that show you how astonishing their survival is. They were uprooted by the Babylonians, by the Medes, by the Persians, later on by the Greek Empire that swallowed up those empires. The Romans came in and took them captive. Before that, the Seleucids under Antiochus Epiphanes almost wiped them out, put his own temple in Jerusalem. Of course, in 70 AD, as Jesus predicted, the Romans came in, deported many of the Jews, killed hundreds and thousands of them, deported 1.3 million of them. In later times, the Emperor Constantine outlawed Judaism in the empire, cut off the ears of many of the Jews and dispersed them once again. 
In the 5th and 6th century in Europe, they were forbidden to hold any public office. Many of them were killed or sold off as slaves. Then in 633, the rise of Islam, of course, in Arabia and North Africa. Most of the Jews in those areas were slaughtered. The Crusades, the Christian Crusades of the 11th century, bore as one of the mottos, kill a Jew and save your soul. All done in the name of Christ to the blemish of the church historically. In 1350, the Black Plague in Europe was blamed on the Jews. Half the Jews in Europe were killed in 1492, besides Columbus doing his little cruise around the world. 800,000 Jews were forced into the sea, and most of them died of exposure. Then, of course, there's the Holocaust. In recent history, where 6 million Jews in Europe were slaughtered. Brings us to this question that we open this chapter with. Will Israel survive the future? And why did Israel survive the past? As I mentioned, since May 14th of 1948, our calendar year, the Jews have regathered back into that tiny piece of real estate that we call the State of Israel. And since then, there has been this thing called a peace process, which is almost laughable because it's very unstable. And it depends who is the newly elected prime minister. And it's a, it's a very, you know, on-again, off-again kind of a proposition. It kind of depends who's elected. And it also depends on the leaders of the Arab states around it. What's going to happen to King Assad of Syria? And what's going to happen in Saudi Arabia? That's now unstable. Uh, King Hussein of Jordan recently died. What's the new political posture going to be? Well, we have yet to see. There's Saddam Hussein, not very far from the land of Israel. Muammar Gaddafi is still around in Libya and hates the Jewish people with a passion. All of this instability in that area. And so what about God's promises to the nation? Are they still in effect? Has God said, I'm through with the nation of Israel? And, and that's important because it brings us to a fundamental question about God's promises to us. If we can't trust God's promises to the nation of Israel, what makes you think you can trust God's promise to you? And so chapter 11, verse 1, opens with this question. I say then, has God cast away his people? Certainly not. That's a very emphatic certainly not. No way, Jose, is my translation of it. For I am also an Israelite of the seed of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin. Has God cast away his people, Paul asked? Has he rejected them? Has he disowned them? Many would say, yes, he has. Many in evangelical pulpits would stand up and say, God is done nationally with Israel. And since Israel rejected their Messiah, when Jesus came, he came into his own, his own received him not. And since Titus came in and destroyed Jerusalem in 70 AD, as Jesus even predicted, it simply proves God is done dealing with Israel nationally. It's over with. So that now all of the promises that God made in the past to the Jews will be fulfilled not with the Jewish nation, but with this new Israel called the church, they say. So that now all the promises that God made to the Jews are to be fulfilled in the church, which is an inconsistent interpretation because there's lots of curses 
as well as blessings that were given to that nation. And it's inconsistent to say, well, all the curses belong to them nationally, but all the blessings belong to us spiritually. But that's essentially what that interpretation does. Has God cast away his people? Certainly not. Although Satan would love you to believe that God's done with Israel. Now, tonight, as we go through this, I may speak very passionately, passionately about it because I did live in Israel for a period of time. I've studied this. I've been over there 22 times. And I have a great love for the nation of Israel because I serve a great God who has a great love for the nation of Israel. He said, whoever touches you, the Jewish people, touches the apple of my eye. I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse those who curse you. So I'm, I'm very careful about where I stand in my posture toward the Jewish nation. Know this. Whatever God loves, Satan hates. God loves you. If you ever open a Four Spiritual Law track, the opening line, I think, is God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. You know what the flip side of the coin is? The devil hates your guts. And he has a miserable plan for your life. And if you follow his plan for your life, you'll be miserable. If you follow God's plan for your life, it'll be wonderful. God also loves the Jewish people. Not because they're greater in number, not because they're more special. God just says, because I love you. I've just made this decision. I'm going to call you. You're going to be mine. I'm going to work my plan through you. And so God has a plan for them and through them, and he loves them intensely. Thus, anything God loves, the enemy, the devil, hates. Why? Because, here's the proposition, if the devil, if Satan, and all of his minions could destroy the nation of Israel, in effect, Satan could wipe out God's entire prophetic plan for the future. And God could then be called a liar because of all the promises he made to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and the descendants of the nation of Israel. Now for just a moment, and I know we, we stopped after just one verse, but consider for just a moment spiritual warfare from the angle I just proposed. Because once you understand that proposition, I think it throws light on the rest of Scripture. If God's plan to bless the world would come through one nation, if you could destroy that nation, you could thwart God's plan. Shortly after the scene in the Garden of Eden when Satan corrupted our first parents, God made a promise. You're familiar with it. Genesis 3, God says, I will put enmity between you. And the woman, he was speaking to the serpent, the devil. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. He, he, speaking of Jesus prophetically, shall bruise your head and you, Satan, will bruise his heel. In that short little promise was a statement that one day God would crush the power, the head of the devil. Okay, let's just say that, let's take that into our own setting. Let's, let's say you really ticked me off. 
Now you didn't, so don't worry about it. I would never say this to you, but, but let's say just I got in the flesh and we had an altercation. I said, you know what, let me just tell you something. I'm going to crush your skull before you get into your car and you go home tonight. That's a promise. If I were to make that kind of a promise to you, you probably wouldn't take it lightly if I made it not in jest. And you would then try to think of all of the ways you could either to get out of it or to counterattack. You don't want your head crushed. And so to keep your head from getting crushed, you're going to do everything you can to stop that because you want to continue to live. And so it is with the devil. Satan and all of his seed, his minions, all of the demons throughout history, from that promise on began their crusade to destroy the promised seed, the nation of Israel that would produce the Messiah who would come and destroy the devil. Example. The first attempt, Cain was strangely motivated to kill his brother Abel, who was the righteous son. God was going to fulfill his promise through him. He was killed. Seth was then born, risen up to take his place. The second major attack was to get the whole world so corrupt to let evil pervade the face of the earth so much that God would have to destroy the whole world, including the promised seed. You destroy everybody off the face of the earth. There is no seed that will come and destroy my kingdom. And he succeeded, except there were eight people that God preserved. And out of that eight, God started all over again. And then we move on a little bit in history, and we see that Esau attempts to kill his brother, Jacob, because God promised that through Jacob, he would fulfill his plan for future blessing. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. A proposed destruction. We read a little further on in the book of Exodus, and we see Pharaoh, who comes up with the, the wildest scheme. He says, every single male Hebrew child that is born, kill it. Drown it in the river. Why? This is Satan's attempt to inspire a leader to destroy the Jewish nation before the seed can come and a messianic kingdom can be established. Let's move on. A few more things you'll be familiar with. King Saul tries to pin David to the wall. Literally, pin the spear on the prophet. Tries to kill David. Why? Because David would be the one God would fulfill his promise through. There would be a throne, God said, a kingdom that would arise. Satan's attempt to inspire a leader to destroy the throne of David that would eventually come. Later on, we read a guy named Haman, in the country of Persia, is inspired to, to try to kill every Jew in the whole empire. He, they had taken the Jews captive. Most of the Jews lived with them. Let's destroy them all, he said. He was under the reign of Ahasuerus, the Persian. Of course, he was hung on his own gallows. But once again, this desire to destroy the seed. Um, I don't want to go through all of them, but I want to read one very dramatic one. In the book of Second Chronicles, chapter 21 and 22, there's a story of a, about a woman named Athaliah, Athaliah, who became an agent of the devil. It says this, quote, She arose and destroyed all of the royal heirs of the house of Judah. Did you get that? 
all of the royal heirs of the house of Judah. That's the promised messianic line, Judah. Why Judah? Why not Benjamin? Why not Issachar? Because the promise that the seed would come through the line of Judah. Everyone was destroyed except one. They took and hid Josiah. And Josiah became the one, the singular person, through which the messianic line continued. I mean, it was one person away from total destruction and wiping out the plan of God, the entire messianic line. Then we read the New Testament. One of the first dramatic stories is a guy named Herod, who, like Pharaoh, decides, go to Bethlehem and kill all of the male children from a certain age and younger. Once again, Satan's desire to destroy the messianic line. We read a little further in the Gospels. We come to Luke chapter 4. Jesus goes to Nazareth. They try to throw him off a cliff to kill him. Satan comes to him in the wilderness and he says, If you're the Son of God, throw yourself down. He'll give his angels charge over you. I think the devil wanted to see him jump off without the help of angels if perhaps maybe he would be killed before the cross could happen, before the resurrection could happen, before all of the messianic promises that would unfold could happen. So there's been this constant spiritual warfare throughout history to destroy the messianic line. But has God cast away his people? Certainly not. The history of the preservation of the Jewish nation, of the messianic line, and of the Messiah with his subsequent resurrection is amazing. Now, you might ask, okay, I, I understand that. I understand why he would attempt to destroy Israel because Messiah, Jesus, would come. And I can see why he would attempt to get rid of Jesus before he could have a crucifixion and a resurrection, etc. But, but why this continued persecution from that point onward? Why the Spanish Inquisition? Why the persecution in Europe? Why the persecution in Britain when a thousand years ago Jews were banished even from the borders of Great Britain? Why the Holocaust? Six million Jews killed. Many blamed God for that. All of that is still the work of Satan and his minions to destroy the, the seed, the nation of Israel, because God has a plan in the future for the Jewish nation, literally, nationally, not just spiritually, nationally, a messianic kingdom. The devil was trying to stop God from fulfilling his promise of a literal kingdom and to destroy the Jewish nation before they could receive it. Verse 2, God has not cast away his people whom he foreknew. Or do you not know the scripture says of Elijah how he pleads with God against Israel saying, Lord, they have killed your prophets and torn down your altars and I alone am left and they seek my life. But what does the divine response say to him? I have reserved for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. I love reading about Elijah. He's one of my favorite Old Testament guys. He was, um, he was a prophet who stood before God and was ever concerned about what God thought about him and didn't really care a whole lot about what people thought about him. So he was able to stand alone because he didn't bow to peer pressure. It would be easy to do because everybody was worshiping Baal. Everyone was worshiping Astoreth. It seemed like he was the only guy who stood up alone 
against the morass of idolatry. And he went to Mount Carmel. In fact, he challenged hundreds of these false prophets to a showdown, a battle of the gods. Let's see whose God really is God, he said. I'll meet you at Mount Carmel tomorrow, noon. You be there. You call on your God, I'll call on my God, and whoever answers is the true God. Fair enough? Fair enough. We'll be there. You know, there's not room enough in this town for both of us kind of a deal. So he, he stands up there, and God works singularly through this man. Of course, he did have a problem. He thought that nobody else in the entire nation was as holy and spiritual as he was. He thought nobody else in the nation is standing up for God and is loyal to the true God as he is. But I do love the fact that he stood alone. Against all the peer pressure, against all the fear pressure, because it could mean his life, they could have killed him. But he was willing to go against the flow. Be willing to go against the flow. Simply because when you follow Jesus, you're right. You happen to be right. They happen to all be wrong. John said, the whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one. And so while the world is saying, hey, don't be so narrow-minded, man. Look at most of the world doesn't think like you think. The whole world can't be wrong. Oh, yes, they can be wrong. That's why we're called to go into that world and preach the gospel to every living creature. That's why Jesus came. Any dead fish can float downstream. Doesn't take any guts to just kind of go along with the flow, adopt the world values, do what they do, laugh at their stupid jokes, but to stand up and say, oh no, even if I'm the only one, I love God and I'm going to serve Jesus Christ. And He's the way to heaven, He's the only way to salvation. Stand up and say that. Don't be afraid to say that. Don't be afraid to live that way. Go against the flow. I. I heard a story that Paul Harvey, the radio talk show host, talked about a story about a mid-school, a junior high school in Arkansas. And the, the superintendent of the school was questioning a girl about her fashion. She came to school with one red sock, one blue sock, very bright. And it was against their dress code in this particular private institution. And uh, so he was questioning her about the way that she was dressing. And she said, well, I'm an individualist. And she said, I have a right to be different if I want to. Besides that, everybody's doing it. <laughs> and I read that story and I thought, that's really what I think about a lot of people in the world who say they're individualists. They call themselves that, but they just follow a trend. Sort of like alternative music. Everybody's doing that now, so it's not alternative anymore. It's kind of mainstream. But Elijah did have a problem, as I mentioned. He thought he was the only guy alone, and it's classic. He stands on Mount Carmel, stands up for God. Then he's afraid because Jezebel threatens his life. That's the queen at the time. So he runs away down to the Sinai Desert, sits under a juniper tree, and says, God, this is enough, man. Just kill me. Here's a guy that stands up boldly for God in front of hundreds of false prophets, and one mean chick is after him. Oh, God, I can't take it. Kill me, God. And then he says, I'm the only one left of all of Israel who's standing up for you. And God says, oh, no, you're not. In fact, I have 7,000 people you don't even know about who have not bowed their knee to Baal. 
I have a remnant, he said. Okay, the whole nation isn't following God. The nation of Israel never wholeheartedly, 100% followed God. But there was always a remnant of people. And so, Elijah, you're not the only one. Yes, the nation has turned from me, but there still is this remnant. I've got 7,000 people who haven't bowed the knee to Baal. And what's Paul's point here? He's saying the Jewish nation never followed God fully. And yes, they don't follow God now. They reject their Messiah now. But there is a remnant that believes. Even so, verse 5, at this present time, there is a remnant according to the election of grace. The gospel first was preached in Jerusalem by a Jewish preacher among Jewish people in a Jewish temple about a Jewish Messiah. Yes, they rejected their Messiah, and the gospel went out to the Gentiles. Paul the Apostle became the great apostle to the Gentiles, though he was a rabbi. He was rejected. Rejected by his own people, he went out to Gentile lands. But whenever he went to Gentile lands, what's the first place he preached in? Synagogue. And though many of them hardened their heart against Paul, it says some of them believed. Key verse, some of them believed. And that's Paul's point. There's always been a remnant of Jewish people who have held to the fact that Jesus Christ is the Messiah. You say, oh, but there's so few people that have done that. The remnant is so small, it might be larger than you think. You know, I bet if you were to calculate the number of Jewish citizens on earth, which is around 15 million, and looked at the percentage per capita of those who believe in Jesus as their Messiah, versus the per capita element of all the rest, Gentiles, that believe in Jesus Christ, I think you'd see a higher percentage. There is a remnant that believes, as there has always been a remnant. And he says, according to the election of grace, unmerited favor. And if by grace, verse 6, then it's no longer of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. But if it is of works, it's no longer grace. Otherwise, work is no longer work. What then? Israel has not obtained what it seeks, but the elect have obtained it, and the rest were blinded. Verse 6 cuts the line between two diametrically opposed systems that we've, we've brought up just about every study in Romans. One is the system of merit works. One is the system of a finished work, a finished work of Jesus Christ that I can't add to. That's grace. The system of grace is where I believe in the finished work of Jesus Christ. He confers upon me by grace his righteousness. And so, and, and so instead of this system of works going, oh, I'm going to strive, I'm going to work hard. Over here, this system is I receive the finished work and I go, oh, yes. You cannot mix grace and works. If you say, well, we're saved by grace plus your continued faithful membership in our church and baptism by immersion front ways only, certainly not at the beach water park. <laughs> you're adding a work to it. The work of baptism. No, you're saved completely by God's grace through faith, plus nothing. Now somebody asked me a couple weeks ago, well, where do works come in? And I thought I mentioned it in the study, but let me underscore it. You're never saved by works. You're saved unto works. Do you know the difference? You're saved to do them, not by them. 
You're saved only by faith. God, I'm a sinner. I can't do it on my own, but I trust in the finished work of Christ for my salvation. I give you my life, and I apply your finished work to my life. Then something happens. You get changed. If any person is in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things have passed away. All things become new. You start noticing new things in your life, like appetites. Suddenly you have this desire to read the Bible. You never had that before you came to Christ. You have a sudden desire to go to church as much as you can. You never had that before. You want to pray with other Christians. You want to grow as a believer. And then you start acting differently as well. Your relationships become sweeter. You become more honest. You want to please God and serve God and get involved in the work of God. All of those are good works that happen after you're saved, not before. So it's not like work, 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 then I'll get saved. It's like get saved first, then come the good works. That's grace. And you can never mix those two. It says this, verse 7, Israel has not obtained what it seeks. All right, what has Israel been seeking? Righteousness. Righteousness. Remember back in chapter 10? Being ignorant of God's righteousness, they've relied upon their own righteousness, a righteousness of works. They're ignorant of God's. If you go to Israel today and you look at the Temple Mount from the Mount of Olives, I say Temple Mount because the temple's gone. You see a mosque of Omar. It's an Islamic shrine. But you see the Temple Mount, where the temple once stood. Today there is no temple. 70 AD it was destroyed, it was burned, it was wiped out. From that point onwards, there has never been a temple, which means there, since 70 AD, have never been animal sacrifices that the Jews trusted in to cover over their sins. So if there's no temple, and there's no animal sacrifices to atone from their, for their sins, there is no approach to God. And so there's no righteousness. Because God himself said, without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. Remove the temple, you remove the sacrifices. Remove the sacrifices, you have no approach for the Jewish nation. You remove the approach to God, you have no righteousness. So they're trying to come to God like Cain did in the Old Testament, based upon their own works, the works of their own hands. So they have not obtained what they're seeking for, but the elect have obtained it, the rest were blinded. Just as it is written, God has given them a spirit of stupor, eyes that they should not see and ears that they should not hear to this very day. Now, uh, please keep this in your mind because there's a balance to this truth. Yes, they're blinded. Yes, their hearts are hardened, by and large, nationally. But Paul is going to transition from that thought around verse 25, saying that blindness in part has happened unto Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And I don't think we'll be able to get to that till next week, but keep that in your mind, and we'll remind you of it next time. God has given them a spirit of stupor, eyes that they should not see, ears that they should not hear to this very day. And David says, let their table become a snare and a trap. Sounds like a bad restaurant, doesn't it? a stumbling block and a recompense to them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they do not see and bow down their back always. Paul is quoting a very significant piece of scripture, a messianic psalm, Psalm 69. Let their table become a snare. 
The idea of table refers to feasting. It's often used as a a metaphor, an idiom of, of great prosperity. As you know from reading your Old Testaments, the Jews had times of feasting. They would get together and have great food, great celebration, great music, dancing. But eventually those feasts started losing the impact. They, they didn't bring God to the feast. They sort of left God out, kept the feast. It was a shell. But the real meaning and purpose of the feast they lost. God says, I'm going to take your feast, this celebration of prosperity and it will turn around. It will actually become barrenness to you. It will become a burden to you. It will be a judgment on you. The feasts of Israel were all pictures of Jesus Christ. He fulfills all of the feasts. We've done studies on this and we've shown how the feasts predicted a certain aspect of the work of Christ and He fulfilled them the Passover being perhaps the most significant. At least we would pick up on that. But the very thing, the very feast that was supposed to open up the window and let the light come in, and they say, oh, I see, Jesus, the Messiah, fulfilled all of this. It predicted him. They're blinded to it. In fact, not only did the feast not lead them to their Messiah, they kept trusting in the feast as the way to get righteous after the Messiah had come. It became a substitute, a substitute. Jesus Christ. They trusted in the ritual, the ceremony, just like, well, when I grew up, I went to a church filled with rituals and ceremonies and all sorts of things that I trusted in for righteousness, but not a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. It was a substitute. I say then, have they stumbled that they should fall? Certainly not. Don't you love Paul? He just keeps this up through the whole book. He asks a question, then he answers it. No way, certainly not. But through their fall, to provoke them to jealousy, salvation has come to the Gentiles. Finish this verse for me. He came to his own, his own received him not. It's quite a statement. Jesus came to his own people, the very nation that God had chosen. The very people that God had given the scriptures to. The very group of folks through which the Messiah was promised to come. He came to them, but they did not receive him. The Messiah is a Jewish concept. The Messiah is birthed in Judaism. So he came to them, but his own received him not. So what happened? God opened the door real, real wide to include everybody. Since the Jews rejected the Messiah, open the door to the whole world, compel anyone to come in the hedges, the highways, and the byways. The door was open to the Gentiles. Why? Paul says to provoke them to jealousy. You've got to understand um, how the Jewish race then, not all of them, but many of them at this time that Paul was writing, felt about Gentiles. Gentiles were called in Hebrew, Hagoyim. Hagoyim, the people. And what that meant is all other people besides us. We're the chosen people. And there's the chosen people, and then there's the other people. There's the us, and then there's the them, the Hagoyim. But we're the chosen race. And some of the Pharisees prayed every single day, Lord, 
thank you that I am not a Gentile, a slave, or a woman. That's what they prayed, some of the Pharisaical, the, the, the Jewish leaders among the Pharisees. Their robes, as they would walk down the marketplace, they would tuck in tightly around their bodies. They didn't want the fringes or the edges of their robe touching anything that has been walked on by Hagoyim, a Gentile, because they were so pure. And then in the temple courts, they were divided into distinct sections, one for Jewish men, one for Jewish priests, one for Jewish women. Then there was a court of the Gentiles. If you were a Gentile and you said, you know, I want to I go a little closer. I don't want to just hang on the outer courts. I want to really get close to God. You would walk until you found a wall about as tall as you are with a sign. And on that sign, these words were found etched in stone. No man of alien race, a non-Jew, is to enter within the balustrade and fence that goes around the temple. And if anyone is taken in this act, let him know that he himself has to blame for the penalty of death that follows. You cross this line, you're a dead man, in other words. Gentiles are kept out. The chosen race kept in. Of course, when Jesus died on the cross, one of the greatest demonstrations of, I'm opening the door to everyone, is when the veil of the temple that not only separated Jew from Gentile, but everyone from God, the veil of the temple was ripped from top to bottom, not bottom to top, top to bottom, out of the reach of man. It was torn by the hand of God. God was saying, come in. Anybody can come in. Have fellowship with me. Paul the Apostle stands in the Antonia Fortress just next to the temple courts. And he's giving his testimony after he was arrested. You remember in the, around the 22nd chapter of the book of Acts, 21st chapter. He talks about going to Damascus and how the Lord saved him and that how he preached the gospel to the Jews and they didn't receive him. And so then he said, and so God told me to go to the Gentiles. And it says, up to that word, they listened to him. But as soon as he said Gentiles, they started throwing dirt in the air and just getting into a rage and fuming and fighting. And since he spoke in the Hebrew language, the Roman guard said, beat this guy, beat him up, find out what he said to make the people so angry. He said, Gentile. God sent me to the Gentiles. God's opening the door to the Gentiles. Well, Paul is saying here is that the Jewish people should be able to look at the Gentile, the church, non-Jewish people, and see, hey, they've got my Messiah. They worship the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They believe not only the New Testament, but the Old Testament, that it's fulfilled in Christ and that there's a plan for the nation of Israel, which, which is me. And that should provoke them to jealousy. They should want what we have. Good question to ask ourselves from time to time is that, does that happen? Does that really happen? Does, does the world look at us? Does the world look at you and go, you know, I don't know what it is, but you've got something that I want it. Jesus said, you're the salt of the earth. Salt makes people thirsty. You're the light of the world. Light leads people out of darkness. People are drawn to the light. Does your Christian witness attract people to become a Christian by what they see in you? Does it sort of provoke them to jealousy? Paul said that should happen 
in the Gentile for the Jewish people. Now, if their fall, verse 12, he continues, is riches for the world, that is, the rejection of the Messiah opened up the door for the whole world. If their fall is riches for the world and their failure riches for the Gentiles, how much more their fullness. For I speak to you Gentiles inasmuch as I am the apostle to the Gentiles. I love this. I magnify my ministry. One of the most exciting things you could ever do, and I, I might be provoking you to jealousy here a little bit, is to take a trip to Israel and to stand on top of the Mount of Olives. And we like to go through an overview of history and even the future because it's so amazing. From that vantage point, you're looking over the city of Jerusalem. Mount of Olives, in front of you is the Garden of Gethsemane in the Kidron Valley and the whole of Mount Zion and the hills that surround Jerusalem. And to look down at that city and to consider its history and its future, you think, God chose that city, he said, of all the cities in the whole world to manifest his name. The temple was built right there in front of me in that city. Jews from all over the land, all over the world, flocked to that place, this city. Salvation was bought in this city. God has a plan and a future restoration for this place. Staggering. If their fall brought riches, what about their fullness? Jerusalem is the geographic center of the world biblically. I don't know if you know that or not, but in the Bible, whenever it talks about west, it's always west of Jerusalem. North is always north of Jerusalem. South, always south of Jerusalem. East is always east of Jerusalem. In fact, in Ezekiel 5, there's an interesting verse of Scripture. God says, I have set Jerusalem in the middle, in the midst of all the nations. And if you're ever in Jerusalem and you stop in the Church of the Holy Sepulcher, it's the Catholic shrine where they say Jesus was crucified and buried and rose again, there's a spot on the ground that's got a metal star on it that says, this is the center of the earth, this spot. The ancient maps showed the land bridge between Europe and Africa and Mesopotamia, and right in the middle was Israel. That's the center of the earth geographically. Also, Jerusalem is the salvation center of the earth spiritually. Remember what Jesus said to the woman at the well in Samaria when they were, she was arguing about this temple in Samaria, is that the place to worship? Or is the place in Jerusalem, is that the cool place to worship? No, which is it? Does it matter where you go to church? Jesus said this, we know what we worship because salvation is of the Jews, period. Salvation is of the Jews. And whenever you're in Jerusalem, you are never far from the very spot where salvation was procured for the whole earth, Golgotha, Calvary. It's the salvation of the earth spiritually. Jerusalem is also the storm center of the world prophetically. Doesn't matter when you live, what era, what generation, Israel always has a prominent place in the news. Every statesman, every politician, every leader knows that the Middle East is a tinderbox, especially Jerusalem. That's the big dispute now. East and West Jerusalem, that's really the, the heat of the argument of the Middle East peace process. These statesmen around the world know that nothing that happens in Africa or Europe or Asia will determine world peace as much as what happens in Jerusalem because of the interesting mix. 
And of course, the Bible says, I will make Jerusalem a very heavy stone for all people. But I want to get to another thing Jerusalem is, because that sort of centers on this text we just read. It's the glory center of the world, ultimately. Ultimately, all the nations of the earth will flow into Jerusalem, it says through the prophet Isaiah. That's your future home, the new Jerusalem. And before that, a restored Jerusalem during the thousand-year reign of Christ. Jesus, the Messiah, will return and literally set up a kingdom and sit upon the throne of David, I believe literally, during the millennial reign. It says in Isaiah, The law will go forth from Zion, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem, and the nations will flow into it. Now, right now in Jerusalem, there's a kingless throne. It's the throne of David. God said, upon the throne of David, somebody will sit and reign forever and ever and ever. Nobody's done that. There's a promise of a throne, but nobody's done it. There's a kingless throne in Jerusalem. In heaven right now, there's a throneless king. Jesus ascended to the right hand of the Father. When those two come together, the kingless throne and the throneless king, you'll have what it says in this verse, fullness. The fullness of glory. Now, notice what it says in that next part. Paul says, I am an apostle to the Gentiles. I magnify my ministry. I've always, um, I've always been amazed at the sovereignty of God in this. Peter was the guy who went out and spoke to the Jewish people, whereas Paul was called the apostle to the Gentiles because he went out and primarily carried the gospel message to non-Jewish people throughout the world. That was his passion. What's wild is that Paul was the most qualified to speak to the Jews. He was the rabbi, sat under Gamaliel, the great man of Judaism. But God used him to speak to some Jews, but mostly to Gentiles. As soon as he was saved, remember Ananias in Damascus was given a message by Jesus Christ to tell Paul the apostle, then Saul of Tarsus, Go, for he is a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name before Gentiles, kings, and the children of of Israel. Jewish rabbi turned apostle to the Gentiles, and he goes, you know what? I love this. I magnify my ministry. I love my ministry. I love what God has called me to do. Let me just say, no matter what ministry God has called you to do, if you can't say this, you should get out. You should get out of that particular ministry. I'm not saying you should get out of the church. God forbid. But if you can't serve in a certain capacity with joy and say, I love what God has called me to do, then don't do it. If you're going to do something and complain, I'm the only one who hasn't bowed their knee to Baal. People should be as diligent as I am. If you can't magnify your ministry and do it with joy, don't do it. God has a place for each believer in the body of Christ. And let me say, the place of greatest satisfaction in your life is when you find that particular place. Whatever it is, understand your gifts, what God has made you to be. Instead of trying to be something else, just be that place of greatest satisfaction. Place of greatest frustration, when you try to fit yourself into something God never called you to do. It's a drag. It's a bummer. You'll have abundant bummer if you do that. You'll have abundant satisfaction and joy if you just be what God made you and called you to be. It's a great frustration not to do that. 
Paul, the apostle, wrote also 1 Corinthians, and he said, if the foot should say, now he's speaking about the body of Christ, and he gives an analogy from the physical body. He says, if the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I'm not of the body. Now, now picture that happening. He's trying to get people to picture that. All of a sudden, one day, your foot starts talking. Hey, man, nobody sees me. You got these shoes that cover me all the time. Your hands move around and people shake your hand. They never shake me. Your hand's so important, but your foot is never seen. I'm not of the body. Paul said, does that mean, because it would think that, that it's not of the body? No. If the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I'm not of the body. Is it therefore not of the body? Well, what if your ear said, hey man, you know, people always notice the eyes. They never notice me. Well, it's true. You, know, you, never, you, you usually don't walk up to someone and go, great lobes. <laughs> you know, those ears are just killer. They're just shaped perfectly. I like your ears, man. They're clean. <laughs> but we notice their eyes, and we often comment, beautiful eyes. And so the ear, perhaps, if it had separate personality and could talk, could say, I'm not an eyeball. I'm not noticed. Is it therefore not of the body? No. If the whole body were an eye, picture that. <laughs> Where would be the hearing? Imagine a five-foot eyeball as a body. Little feet, big eye. It's useless. What do you do with it? Put it in the back seat, get big sunglasses for it. It'd be an anomaly. That is his point precisely. It's useless. There needs to be balance. Every portion of your body is so designed to work together. Every part of the body of Christ is so designed to work together. And sometimes, as Paul brings out in this analogy, we do this with people. We elevate certain gifts. Certain ones are Christian stars. They're of the elite. They do this. They do that. Oh, but this person or me, I'm really not that important. We make the same mistake. We make other people or gifts bigger than the rest of the body. They're just part of the body. And every one of us is important and should be able to say, I magnify my ministry. Preacher, teacher, administrator, those with the gifts of knowledge, helps. All necessary. If by any means I may provoke to jealousy those who are of my flesh and save some of them, that's the Jewish people. For if their being cast away is the reconciling of the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? And we'll close with that tonight. Life from the dead. Do you remember when Ezekiel, around the 37th chapter, got that vision? God took him in a vision to a valley, and there was dry bones in the valley. And he saw these scattered bones, and God said, Hey, Ezekiel, let me ask you a question. Can these bones live? And Ezekiel had the answer, the right answer goes, you know. You're God, you're asking me, you know. He said, Ezekiel, stand up and prophesy to these bones. And as you prophesy to them, 
I will cause my breath to come into them, and I'll make them live. So in his vision, he stood up. You know, dreams aren't always making that much sense all the time. So he stood up with his vision this time of God, and he started prophesying to bones. Imagine speaking to a bunch of dry bones. Okay, listen up, you guys. Uh, And he prophesied to them the word of God, and God's breath came in them. Sinews, flesh, muscles grew upon them, and a great army arose. And God said, that's the nation of Israel. That's the nation of Israel. Just when they say it's over, we're history, God's plan will never be fulfilled in us, I will raise them up in the last time. When will that time be? When will God raise them up again? We'll answer that next week. 